You're listening to Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one show featuring the brightest minds in marketing, PR, and digital advertising. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one podcast for all things communication, advertising, and marketing. I'm your host, Ted Lau, award-winning agency owner, podcaster, and family guy. Today on our show, we have Cliff Freegan. Cliff is known nationally for his expertise in leadership development, stakeholder relations, partnership development, and development of programs and services. Since August 2019, Cliff has held the Chief Operating Officer position with Inspire, a nationally recognized top 10 charity in Canada supporting Indigenous students through scholarships, bursaries, and mentorship initiatives. Inspire has grown to provide over $20 million in scholarships to 6,900 students in the past 2021-2022 year. Cliff, welcome. Thanks. Nice to be here. So with all the folks that we talk to, we always ask for an origin story, trying to understand you know, a little bit about who Cliff is and where you came from and how you got to where you are today. Well, again, thanks for inviting me on. My name is Cliff Freegan. I was born and raised in the north coast of BC. My home community is Prince Rupert City and grew up around Prince Rupert until going to college. But also my heritage is from Haida Gwaii. I am Haida. And I'm actually, in our tradition, we identify ourselves through our parents or grandparents. And so I'm the eldest grandson of my grandparents, Earl and Sophie Parnell, from Old Masset. And I'm part of the Kunlanis clan. And my Haida name is Nan Kadinas, which means one who knows. And I was given that in a potlatch by my grandmother's sister. She, oh my goodness, about 20 years ago now. So grew up in Prince Rupert and went to college in Alberta and came back to the North Coast to work in economic development, business development, and then was lucky enough to move on to manage a couple of trust funds, one for the Haida Nation and the settlers on Haida Gwaii called Gwaii Trust. And then some years later, I was a CEO of a trust fund in, for British Columbia First Nations called New Relationship Trust. So after being the CEO of the trust fund, you know, what else have you done? Well, going back a bit, my whole history has been really working for First Nations, really building capacity for individuals and or communities and or organizations. So I started out as an ECDEV officer for a tribal council that supported First Nations business development. And then I actually went into lending, a First Nations lending corporation to be a loans officer and then the, the manager of the organization. And did that for a few years. And then from that, I went on to the trust work. I really felt when I was in the business development lending circle, there was nowhere to move. I made the highest level I could. So I looked at other opportunities and it was interesting enough. I got offered in 1995, I got offered three jobs at once. One was running a national organization called Can Do, which is economic development officers across Canada in Edmonton. And one was a loans officer for Northern British Columbia out of Kamloops. And then the third one was the first executive director of a trust fund for the Haida and the non-Haida on Haida Gwaii. And I took that one uh, because of the challenge and because of the fact it had been the first time I moved back to my home community mm-hmm. and built a house there and raised my kids there. They got to learn Haida language. They got to be more immersed into the culture, which was a fantastic move. So you've been in the C-suite 
basically since 95 or late 90s. And so that's been some time. And now you're with Inspire as a COO. We're a podcast here around marketers and a lot of marketers, be it marketing managers, directors, CMOs, we all need to work with the C-suite, right? The CEOs and the chief operating officers to really understand how to make the organization work, right? We're really in service of the leadership and in terms of where the leadership wants to take the organization. So maybe if you could help us understand a little bit better for marketers, how they need to think maybe to get some of their ideas across, right? Because a lot of the people in the C-suite aren't marketers. They don't think with the marketing hat. What are your tips? Do you have any tips on how we can kind of break through the communication barriers as they were sometimes? Well, before that, you know, you made the comment about being in the C-suite since 1995. And I just want to comment on that for listeners that are out there. How did I get there? You know, how did a young guy at the time achieve nothing spectacular, but definitely, you know, advanced a career that was basically I could have stayed in the same position forever. That position is still there in Prince Rupert. I could still be there and be really good at it, I hope. But I wanted more. I wanted to build on my skills. And so really what happened was I had to move. I had to location physically, geographically, I had to move to get better positions. So I went to Haida Gwaii to be an executive director of a trust fund, $40 million trust fund, which was very successful. I stayed there seven years. And then I actually got offered a COO position in Ottawa to oversee all the Aboriginal financial institutions in the country, about 60 of them. And so I moved from executive director to COO then, and that was in 2002, 2003. But that transition really built my network and built my skills nationally to include a lot of different people, right? And so that's why I got that. And when I was in Ottawa, which is a different world, of course, from the North Coast, another opportunity came up where a headhunter said, Cliff, would you be interested in starting a $100 million trust fund in Vancouver? And by that time, my kids were, you know, a big decision is your kids as well. They had a good education. They're into sports. You know, they're doing quite well. And moving back to Vancouver to the coast was great because it's the coast. <laughs> and so I got to be a CEO. What was that year? 2006. So, you know, I was 43 years old, I guess, at the time. And I got to build out a $100 million trust fund administration, which is fantastic. And I did that for almost 13 years. So I think the message there is that look for opportunities outside your shell, outside your bubble. If that's what you want to do, a lot of people want to just stay where they are. And that's fair. I wanted to kind of see how far I could push this. Would you say that it was around your network? Would you say like in terms of building that or was there a lot of schooling? Obviously there's experience on the job, right? Yeah. But yeah. in terms of, yeah, that's one thing to move to another area to grow your network. But how did you, it seems like you leapfrogged a bit, like from here to here and you were able to really build a career out of that. Absolutely. It's about being fortunate for sure. You know, my schooling, it was political science at the University of Alberta. Really nothing a lot to do with what I was doing. It's a career-wise, but I was around politics too, right, all the time. I failed to mention that when I moved back to Old Massett, my reserve, I actually served on council for three terms, which was fantastic for me to do that, to support our community. But, you know, it's about your network. 
It's about people you meet. It's about how you carry yourself. It comes down to your values. It comes down to, you know, your principles and people pick up on that. And then you meet that person who works for a headhunting firm and they say, oh, hey, will you send me a resume and things like that. And then persona, the way you interact with people, the way you carry yourself really translates to people. And so I got to build out a network nationally and people got to know me. Of course, you have to do kind of a good job too. But the thing is, is that I would never be here unless I actually moved to Haida Gwaii. I moved to Ottawa. I moved back to Vancouver. I just took advantage of opportunities that were benefiting, not my career specifically too, it was my family, making sure that my kids had opportunities. And as you know, a family man myself, to consider that, how do you weigh that? Because if you're going from one part of the country to the other side, and you did it a few times, yeah, there's a sense of uprooting and new community, network, socially and business-wise. How do you balance the business side with the family side? It's about your partnership. It's about your relationship with your partner. It's about what your goals are individually. In our case, when we moved from Haida Gwaii to Ottawa, which is a big move from a res to Ottawa, was the fact we really wanted our kids to have a good education. And they were, at the time, I think, eight, and 10, something like that. And my younger one is a special needs, so we wanted to be close to a hospital too. But it really the foundation was, how do we provide them a great opportunity? Because in Haida Gwaii, it's amazing in Haida Gwaii. It's quiet, you're in culture, you're in amazing lands. It has its own real positives. We felt at the time that the kids should get a, an education, which is, but also importantly to me was that they get a chance to play sports, that they get a chance to be active. And so my son, who is the second oldest, he, you know, he played hockey when he got to Ottawa. He played baseball. My daughter became a competitive swimmer that, swam for SFU for a short time. Nice. So those things would not have happened on Hadigwai, but at the same time, we looked at kind of all aspects and it was a decision by the family. It's tough on the kids for sure, but you know, they're tough. Yeah, kids are resilient. You wouldn't do it when they're, you know, in grade 11, 12 or 10, 11, 12, maybe because they're so entrenched with their group and stuff. But we kind of did that moves before those dates. You went from loan officer to CEO of major trusts, and now you work for one of the largest charities in the nation. So a lot of your work pivoted from you know business development loans to now you know you're doing stuff to forward a cause. And a lot of the guests that we talk to on our show really go with their dreams, go with purpose. And so, what caused you to make that shift? Well, what happened was when I was with the New Relationship Trust and setting up that $100 million trust fund, when you're the CEO of a small team, the vision of that trust really is part of the CEO. I got to say, okay, we need to do a governance fund to support First Nation communities, 200 First Nation communities in BC. The board said, great, let's do it. And we piloted things, right? We just like, let's do, let's do $500,000 for a clean energy fund. I got to set up it. NRT was a scholarship fund for BC First Nation students. So it was like, okay, we're going to give 
$5,000 for undergraduate, $10,000 for master's, and $20,000 for doctorate students. And we got to set that all up, and we got to see these students come in, and this money really helped them. So I, we were involved in all aspects of capacity building. I think I said earlier, but I may not have, is I just kind of fell into how do I help people? How do I assist capacity at different levels? And that's kind of been the foundation of what I've done. And so with NRT, I was there 12 and a half years, almost 13 years, right? CEO and people thought it was a dream job, which it was. You know, I had a team of eight people. And then at one time I hired another seven people to do contracts. Now. But you're spinning your wheels a little bit and you kind of want to look at you know, challenges. And the opportunity with Inspire was, of course, it was in Ontario. That's challenging in itself. But the idea was how can I work with the leadership at the time there? When I started, Roberta Jameson, who is one of the top female Indigenous women in the country, politically and administratively and in all aspects of her life. I mean, she has 27 honorary doctorates. I've never heard of My such goodness. a thing before. I know. So I really wanted to work with her. And I got a chance to for almost two years. And then the new CEO came on. But the idea was Inspire was bigger, was in the sense of, you know, it was 50 staff, 50 plus staff. It was building capacity, assisting students. It was an easy transition for me. We're doing this as a part of Truth and Reconciliation Day and our mission to increase awareness amongst Indigenous issues. You've committed most of your life, really, in the Indigenous community and elevating those nations. And so what advice would you give to folks who want to get involved, be it those that are hosts, those that are allies, newcomers to the country? Because you've done a lot of great work in the nation for the cause that is important to you. What advice would you give so that we can help support? I think a similar advice that I'd give to marketers and companies too, and marketers, you know, this is probably foundational stuff for them is, you know, building relationships. I'll go back to the question you asked before first. How would you provide some advice to marketers or people in that field on how to approach organizations? I would say it is difficult to cold call people. I get a lot of emails from marketing software type companies. And the first thing I look for is I look on where they're from. Who are they? Where they're from? Most of them are from the States. Like I'm getting like people that, they come across like they know you and stuff. And I'm like, oh, no, it's more like spam. So my recommendation is whenever you can is to not hard sell anything, is to just initiate a conversation if you can. And in bigger organizations, most of the time it's not possible with a COO or a CEO. So finding that person within the organization that you can reach out to and kind of Introduce yourself, introduce what you do, introduce what you can do is important. And in some cases, it's taken the opportunity to meet somebody less and less now in person. But I think still we're coming back to that. It's definitely tough for, I think, marketers to just reach out and try to sell something. But what about the actual messaging? Like if we're marketers and we're creating campaigns on behalf of companies... And diversity, equity, and inclusion is a big part of today's marketing message. Yeah. What would you say that 
you know, we need to do as marketers when we're creating campaigns to build that relationship from a one-to-many standpoint? My recommendation is I would go into the history of it more. I would say, why are we doing this? What's the messaging? Why am I or why are you, Ted, coming and saying, I'm doing this, you know, rather than sell it, saying, you know, we've heard this, we're working with so-and-so, we're looking at this, you know, this is what we want to provide. This is the expertise we have. We'd like to just, you know, have a short chat. I know you're busy, that type of thing. But I would say a little more history around who you are and what you're trying to do as a person, as an organization would help. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You were talking about, you know, when certain folks approach you. I would assume it's not just marketers. When people approach you in general, you look at where they're from. And... At my agency, Ballistic Arts, we actually invited a consultant, an Indigenous consultant last year, to educate our team on Indigenous community relationship building. And the individual, the consultant, she had mentioned that ancestry is a really big deal. That when you talk to me, like if I'm talking to Cliff, I see Cliff. You know, I have a Western mindset. Yes, I'm Asian, but it's very much like I'm talking to Cliff and that's really it. But Puhanik, the woman who consulted us, she said, no, I look at not just you, but all your people that that you came from. And I don't know if that's synonymous for all Indigenous folks. I've heard this a few times with individuals. And it just kind of resonated with me with what you just said there around that, you know, where you're from. Is that something that is important to leaders in the Indigenous space, would you say? It is. It is important. I think it's more of a connection right? You're making a connection to who you're talking to. And so if we just met Ted and we're in a, in a meeting together or even we're on a call together on Zoom or whatever, and it's the first time, then, you know, we like to know about who you are. Who are you? Where are you from? I grew up in Vancouver, but my parents are so-and-so and they came from Asia here, there, and, you know, this is my family. And, we like to hear that. We like to, it kind of grounds mm. where we begin, right? So I think it's an indigenous thing. 
It is. You know, one of the things that we say in the North Coast, and I've heard it across Canada in different ways, is when you meet someone, we will say, whose own are you? What does that mean? It means, where are you from? Who's your family? Mm. So someone like someone from Prince Rupert, and there's different nations, right? And we'll say, well, who are you? Whose own are you? And they'll say, oh, I'm from this community. This is my family. This is my parents, my grandparents. Oh, I know them. You know? So it's a matter of that connection. And even if it's someone from another culture, it's still a connection. In my culture, being Chinese, Canadian. So my parents both came from Hong Kong, but mainland China as well. And I guess there is some similarities because we would always talk about the village that my father's from or the village that my mother's from and who their people are and my wife. So if in Chinatown in the you know late 1800s and the early 1900s when, when there was the railroads and all that kind of stuff and Chinatown in Vancouver is being built, those folks actually don't speak Cantonese nor do they speak Mandarin. They speak Toisan, which is a village still within the Guangzhou, the, the Canton province, but they speak a very different dialect. And my wife's her family comes from that time. When I go and sit down with her grandparents for the first time, they did actually, funny enough, ask me, oh, so where, where are your parents from? And I actually, good thing I knew. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I remember yeah. the name of the village, villages that they came from. And I think it did create a sense of closeness, sense of for familiarity, sure. like, oh, I know so-and-so from this village. It was something that was, you know, part of my Chinese ethnicity. It wasn't something that I necessarily used in my day-to-day business acumen and arsenal, as it were. And so when I'm hearing this, now it brings me back to when I'm you know, trying to relate to my girlfriend, now wife's family. So I guess what you're saying is that's a lot of that communication when you're speaking to Indigenous communities. For sure. And what it does is it opens up communication, right? It provides some confidence. It provides some interest in kind of pursuing a conversation. I had someone work for me many years ago, still a friend of mine, who's from Germany. And you go back, you know, even a generation or two, like, it's not like, oh, that's such a nice village. It's like, oh my gosh, you, your family is those people, right? How does that work then? Because does that then taint your, no? You're shaking no. your hands so the audience can't see. No, I see. don't think so. Yeah, like, no, I don't think it taints it. I think you're still curious about who they are. You know, and everybody has some ups and downs in their history, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you share what you're comfortable sharing. But I think it's worse if you just say, ah, I don't want to talk about that. You know, let's talk about something else. Because you're in the indigenous world, you're trying to build communication. You're building not a relationship, but you're building the blocks around how you communicate. And that's important. One of my members of my team when we were going through this ancestry unit of the seminar series that we had with Bohanics, this person, family, single mother, teenage mom, when he was born, uh, mm-hmm. I don't think he's ever met or knows who his father is, right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't even know half of his lineage or the who's your owner. Whose owner are you? Yeah. Whose owner are you? He, half of it, he doesn't know. Is that also okay? There's a lot of that. Yeah, there's a lot of that too. You know, there's a lot of that. And that's fine. That's fair. And there's tough stories out there. What I would say if I ran into somebody like that, I would say, do you have any connection to your community? Do you know any relatives in your community? Do you know your community? Because some of them don't, right? Mm -hmm. Some of them don't Mm -hmm. know where they're from. 
are you interested in finding out? You know, I can tell you where you can look. I can give you some direction or, you know, some advice. That's how I would say it. So I've run into people like that. And when I was at NRT, we did a scholarship program, right? A small version of what I do now. But we got Indigenous people in British Columbia, live in Vancouver, Victoria, in bigger cities that said, you know, I've never been to my community. I have no connection to my community. And one of our requirements was to get a letter of support from your community. So they know who you are, right? Mm -hmm. And so I would say to my staff, and I would speak to some of the students, I would say, reach out, contact them, talk to their education person. They'll give you a letter. They'll probably know something about your family too. So every time I did that, it was, you know, a dozen times or so. Every time the community gave them a letter of support. Mm-hmm. All they had to do is just reach out. I don't know what happened after that, but the point was just the fact that, you know, talk to them. I feel like that's Cliff's MO just in life. You know, like it's just do it, just reach out. Just we started this conversation off with, you know, grow outside of your comfort zone, your region, go somewhere else, make the relationships, build the relationships, go make the ass. And same thing with the young people that you're supporting. Those that don't know, just, well, doesn't hurt to ask, is really what you're advocating. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if I mentioned this last month in our conference when I did the presentation, but in moving, I found like four or five letters when I was out of college looking for work from pristine letters. Like they were still perfect. Handwritten. These are handwritten letters. No, no, no. They were official letters from government. Oh, okay. Okay. Yes. And from, you know, companies that said no. Rejection letters. Rejection. You kept them. I didn't know I kept them. I found them in in an old box, but you know, it was from government agencies. It was from, this is when there was no indigenous focus. Mm. This is in the early 80s, mid 80s. But, you know, I had a rejection letter from the Vancouver Grizzlies. Like I wrote Arthur Griffiths and said, I love basketball. I would love to be part of the Vancouver Grizzlies. And he wrote back and he signed it. I still have it. I was a season ticket holder for the Vancouver Grizzlies. But he wrote back and said, yeah, sorry, we don't have a position right now for you. To me, like you just said, you know, you're pushing yourself. You know, I applied everywhere, right, to try to get my career started. Isn't that the success? That's what success is built on, right? Piles of no's and rejections, isn't it? Well, yeah. One of the biggest advices I give to young people of all ages, young people at heart, is if you're in a process to get a job and you're going to get an interview, take the interview. Every time, take the interview. Don't worry about getting rejected. But you know what? Every time you take that interview, you're going to get better at it. And I've provided that advice for 30 years. Well, and also, I think you build a relationship. You know, I'm on the other end where I'm the CEO of my company. And I'll take anyone that reaches out to me that asks me for an informational interview just for my time, either they're starting an agency or they're starting out in marketing or whatnot, because I know how hard it was. Yeah. And so for me to pay it for, that's one thing. But the other thing is just building that relationship with that person, that human being. You never know, 5, 10, 20 years later, that person could be an ally, a friend, someone that might be able to open a door for you. Yeah. Could be a Bill Gates. You never know. Could be a Bill Gates. You never know. So I used to write business plans when I started out. I wrote business plans for people or companies and 
and uh, I funded them too. You know, it, did, it was a full house, you know, package type thing. Every time someone was wanting to start a new business, this was in the Prince Rupert area at the time, I would say, reach out to someone in Vancouver, reach out to someone in Prince George that has this business. Cause you know what they're going to do? They're going to help you. Hmm. They're going to tell you what to look out for. What are the challenges? Because you're not a direct competition. And just what you just said about helping people out that come and ask, that's the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Everybody would love to help someone else start a similar business in a different market. I agree. And you know, myself, I mentor younger agency owners. And that's what drew me to your talk when you were presenting about Inspire. So for those listeners who don't know, Cliff and I met at the Sponsorship X conference in early August of 2022 in Whistler. And he put on this great presentation about Inspire and what they do and how they support Indigenous youth, especially in education, entrepreneurship. It's something that I take interest in. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what the vision is, or maybe a little bit even a history and and the impact that Inspire has provided and what's next for Inspire. Right. So I've been in with Inspire just over three years now and hired as the COO. Love the job. Have great people that are working for us. And it's a cause, right? It's something that we're all motivated. We're all totally 100% into supporting Indigenous students to hire their education. Wow. That's like amazing. And so we get some seed money from the federal government. And then what we do is we actually match that with the private sector. So banks, private sector, resource companies, they'll come in and say, oh, we want to provide scholarships to these First Nations or, or anybody that's going into this field or whatever the case is. And we'll say, great, we'll match you. So if someone puts in 100 grand, we'll match it to 200,000. And then that is such a good hook for them that it affects more people. So that has been happening with Inspire for the last 25 years. Inspire, it started out as an art foundation, an Indigenous art foundation, and then it kind of evolved into this scholarship anniversary. The old Inspire, it used to be called the National Aboriginal Achievement Foundation, has this incredible art collection too, but it moved into scholarships and bursaries, and that's where we're focused now. We're also you know, building up a mentorship program where we're trying to support high school students coming into university, university students themselves, and then career transition. How do they come out? Where do they? How can we help in some small way in the career transition? So we're doing some mentorship there. We're building that out. We're building out a research component too, because we get 10,000 students every year applying to us. You know, these are young and old people that are going back to school or whatever the case is that have a vast body of knowledge within them. What are their challenges and stuff? I'm sure your audience is aware that the Indigenous population in Canada is the fastest growing population. You know, it's 2.5 times the regular population. So we have a really young population, you know, 50% under 25 years old. That's great. So, you know, supporting them on getting out there and getting some education and then contributing back to their community, back to their markets, to their economies and, you know, being productive and supporting other Indigenous students and groups going forward. So that's where we are. We want to build out more mentorship. We want to build out more supports. We do three major conferences, well, 
two major conferences, and then we have an event we do every year. One is for high school students called Soaring. So we invite you know, a thousand high school kids to an in-person event. The next one is May in Edmonton. So we'll have like 40 different workshops for these young people. We'll have universities there. We'll have you know a whole bunch of opportunities for them and speakers and stuff. So there's that. We do one for educators, Indigenous educators, and non-Indigenous educators that teach in Indigenous schools and such, where we provide capacity building support for them. Best practices, how do they support Indigenous students? The final, right now, we hold an award show that has started 29 years ago called Inspire Awards Now. And really, it's about honoring Indigenous excellence across the country. So... Who's ever the best in their fields, public service, law, lifetime achievement. And then we do three youth awards, one for First Nation youth, one for Métis, and one for Inuit. So we're the 12 awards a year, and that's broadcast on CBC and APTN annually around the third week in June. So those are the main things we do. Trying to build on that, trying to support more students in different ways. And right now we do about 6,000 or so awards a year and we've got 10,000 students apply. So, you know, we still have a gap that we're always trying to fill. So then in, from a communication standpoint and a marketing standpoint, what is Inspire doing to reach out? Is there particular strategies? You speak at conferences, you do some advertising. What is the approach there? It's multi, you know, we do social media stuff now is the stuff, you know, the Facebooks, the Twitter, the IG, and we do all that kind of stuff. We're reaching more kids now, actually, than I think previously. I mean, our numbers have gone up. So we do that. We do speaking engagements. We do a lot of interaction with sponsors and donors. We have a whole team that looks at how donors can support us. We have multi, I think our team is about, I'm going to say 10, 10 people in our development team that look at different ways to attract donors, to tell what we do. And we're always talking to different companies about different ways to support students. Are you looking for more students? Are you looking for more sponsors and bursaries? We're always looking for students. We want to help as many as we can. And so there's that kind of target. We're always looking for like-minded sponsors for the high school event, for the educator event, for our excellence awards. So we're looking for that. You know, we have some great sponsors on board now. I mean, and have for a long time, which is great. We're always looking to how do we partner with more organizations? So right now, one of the things we're concentrating on is with the federal government, we're looking at renewing a five-year agreement where they provide us some seed money for scholarships and bursaries. And that's hopefully this fall we'll, we'll get some approval. Well, that's great news. Well. You know what, Cliff, I think let's move to our rapid fire round. I'm going to ask you a few questions just to get to know Cliff a little bit. If you're ready, I'm going to start throwing some questions at you. Okay, good. Go ahead. Favorite NBA player right now? Oh, good one. The young guy on the Raptors, Scotty Barnes. Amazing. Stefan Curry, of course. Hmm. And what's the top three? I'm going to have to say the guy on Portland. Leonard, Leonard, Leonard. So no LeBron, no LeBron for you. Really, I'm a LeBron fan. The guy has done everything right in his career. Hmm. The best player history, of course, I grew up in the Jordan era. Right? Yeah, Michael Jordan, absolutely. What song do you have on repeat right now? Ooh, jeez. 
I'm an eighties guy. So I have all eighties music. You got some journey going on journey or some Elton John, Elton John, flock of seagulls, Depeche <laughs> mode. Depeche you know, mode. Nice. <laughs> Do you have a favorite indigenous artist? You know what? I'm a big fan of the two big Haida artists right now and the master Robert Davidson and the master Carver, Jim Hart. I'm big fans of them and I'm a fan of indigenous art for sure. So Cliff, how do we get a hold of you and how do we get a hold of folks that inspire? Yeah, I can check out our website, inspire.ca. We have everything on there. I'm on there, cfreakin at inspire.ca if anyone wants to reach out and check us out. We're always looking for positive partners. All right, my friend. Well, Cliff, thank you very much for spending time with us at Marketing News Canada. It was great to get to hear your journey and your insights on how we can grow our careers. Awesome. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks, Cliff. Bye, everybody. Well, thank you for another great episode of Marketing News Canada. This is Ted and Cliff signing off. Thanks for listening to Marketing News Canada. For more episodes and other great stories from Canadian marketers, visit marketingnewscanada.com. All episodes are recorded in the Jelly Marketing Studio, thanks to our producer, Chris Penner, and editors, Travis Jeffers and The Podfather. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.